Thanks, Mana. Uh, hey, everyone, once again, my name's Ming. It's been really great to be back. Angela and I were actually really sad that we couldn't come back middle of the year uh, because of COVID, and we were even worried that we wouldn't be able to come back now because of quarantine and other things like that. But we're incredibly thankful to be back, and it's actually been quite overwhelming, and we're quite speechless about it. Um, and it's not just been great to see familiar faces, but we've been so uh, blown away by how many new faces there are at church as well, just seeing more and more people be willing and keen to hear the Bible be taught to them uh, and to hear the gospel of Jesus. Uh, but now, let's, uh, why don't we dig into the Bible and let's pray before we do that. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, as we look into your word today, uh, help us to be grateful for it and to be thankful for it and to receive it well. Uh, help us to pay attention to what you have to say to us, and may it shape and mold and change our lives and grow our affections for your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray this in his name. Amen. Often people think that Christianity uh, is a philosophy or a set of rules you follow like any other religion. Uh, and its philosophy or set of rules come from the Bible. They think the Bible is the Christian's guide to life, their instruction manual, if you like. And so it's no surprise when they start to wonder, what's the fuss about the Bible? What's the big deal? There's been tons of philosophies, religions, ways to live your life, so what makes the Bible any different? I have a simple aim today. I want you to leave knowing that the Bible isn't just some philosophy book, but instead, it tells you who Jesus is. The Bible is how you meet God's Son, Jesus, who he sent into the world, into history, to be the Lord and Savior of humanity. And Christians make a big deal about the Bible because the Bible is the only way to meet this Jesus. It is the only way to meet Jesus, to trust him, believe in him, and find hope and salvation. Here at church, we run a course called Explaining Christianity, uh, which we run for people wanting to investigate the claims of Christianity for themselves. Uh, and in that course, we ask people to read about Jesus in Mark's gospel, in the Bible. Uh, and one of the things I've noticed is when people actually read one of the gospels like Mark for the first time, they're shocked. They're shocked that Jesus isn't the picture they had in their head. They're shocked that Jesus isn't some vague, Confucius or Gandhi-type character who just goes around being nice to everyone. They're shocked that, uh, and I love it when people are shocked, because it means they're starting to understand the real Jesus. They're starting to see him for who he really is. They're meeting their maker. They're getting rid of the imaginary Jesus we all have in our heads, the one we might see in the movies or hear about on the internet, and instead, they're getting the real Jesus. Without the Bible, people always end up with some imaginary Jesus. Maybe it's Jesus the politician, or Jesus the social worker, or even Jesus the backup plan. Whatever imaginary Jesus we have in our heads we often settle there because we can just ignore him. We can brush him off to the side, downplay what he's saying or who he is. But it's only the Jesus we meet in the Bible that can truly capture our hearts. Now for the Christians among us here, those who trust and love Jesus and believe in him, we need to hear this just as much as anyone else. Because when we stop coming to the Bible, we slowly stop being amazed at who Jesus is. And our faith ends up being about what's expected of us rather than about who great, how great Jesus is. So to our question today, why should I care about the Bible? Above all else, it's because you get to meet the most incredible person ever. You get to meet Jesus. So let's get into it. 
In our passage today, Tribunia outlines, we have three perspectives. One from Mark, one from John the Baptist, and one from God himself. Uh, And from these perspectives, we just get a taste, a taste of who the Bible is all about. So first, Mark's perspective. Mark is one of four biographies about Jesus we have in the Bible. Uh, We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark over the next four weeks. Uh, But of these four biographies, Mark is short, snappy, and upfront. And right at the start in verse 1, he tells us what we're looking at. Verse 1, have a look, should be on the screen. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the word gospel here simply means good news. And nowadays we naturally tie that word to Christians. But back in the Roman world, when this book was written, it was especially tied to the emperor. The word gospel was tied to Caesar. People were used to getting gospels sent out from Caesar, telling everyone how amazing he was and all the great things he had done for the people. So when people heard the word gospel, they expected to hear something about how Caesar has defended the nation or or how he's conquered that country or some new title he's received. They were sort of like what we might see in politics today, where the president or a prime minister will get up on TV and give a talk about all the great things their party has done, share some amazing statistics or, or celebrate a policy they've implemented. But Mark here, Mark says... Mark tells us this isn't just another gospel of Caesar. This isn't a speech from the prime minister on TV. This is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And this news is above any other news you'll ever have heard or will hear. Now, the name Jesus means God saves. That's what Jesus means. God rescues. But it's the next part of verse 1 that's utterly significant. Christ. Now, Christ isn't Jesus' surname. When I was younger, I didn't know that. I just thought that was his last name. Kind of like when people say, you know, the name's Bond, James Bond. But Christ is not Jesus' surname. It was a special title. It meant Messiah, God's special chosen king. So in summary, this book is the good news about God's chosen savior king. It's a pretty big claim, but it's not even the biggest claim, because it's the last bit of verse 1 that's especially significant, because this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Nowadays, this doesn't strike us as significant, does it? Even people who aren't Christians know that Jesus is called the Son of God. They think that's just what people call Jesus. But if we just took a moment to think about it, it's not something you just call someone. You don't just call anyone God's son. Yet, Christians believe that this man, Jesus, is the son of God. During the time this book was written, Roman emperors liked calling themselves sons of God. In many of Caesar's gospels, he liked to call himself a son of God. He called himself divine, a gift from God himself. But Mark tells us to forget about their good news, forget about these pretenders, What I'm sharing with you is the good news about God's promised Savior King, His one and only Son. So right at the start, we see that this is no ordinary book about any ordinary man. Why should I care about the Bible? The Bible is where you get to meet this person. And this isn't a person you can just ignore. This news demands a response. 
As a new dad, I've come to understand the very real consequences of thinking I can ignore things. One of my more recent lessons was when to change baby Timothy's nappies. I used to think I could ignore checking, ignore changing for a little bit longer, hoping I could save a nappy here or there. Maybe it's just the cheapo Asian in me wanting to reduce the number of nappies we go through. Maybe it's just me being lazy, hoping I can overlap changes. I'm sure some of you experienced parents know what I'm talking about and laughing at me. Whatever it is, it wasn't until I realized the bombs Timothy can pull off. Bombs so big he can let it rip even beyond the nappy into his clothes. It wasn't until then I realized that ignorance is not an option. The consequences are too great. And this is just one small example of trying to play the ignorant card. When it comes to Jesus, he's not only far better news, but he's much bigger news. See, some people respond to Jesus by saying they don't believe it. You might respond by believing it and being amazed at who Jesus is. But let's get this right. There's no in between. There's no thinking you're a neutral party here. It doesn't make sense when people say, yeah, I like Jesus, he's a good guy, but then don't want to do anything about it. No, you don't like Jesus, you don't know who he is, you haven't understood him. There's no in-between with God's chosen king. This is Mark's perspective. We are meeting God's savior king, his own son, and you either don't believe him or you believe him and give your life over to him, but there's no in-between. Now, before we move on, Mark has one more thing to tell us about Jesus in this passage. Because in verse 2, the story begins. But the good news about Jesus didn't start with Jesus. It started thousands of years earlier. Sometimes we, we can think that the Bible is a little bit of a Frankenstein of a book. All kind of stitched together and hard to understand. It's got all these hard commands, weird names, and strange events. But in reality, a carefully crafted book made up of select pieces of writing collected over 1,500 years. And behind it all is one author, the author of life. Behind every piece of writing, every period in history that spans the Bible is a connected story of God pointing to his son Jesus. And that's what Mark is showing here in verse 2. Just before our passage, for hundreds of years, God's people were waiting for a savior. Israel had been abused and oppressed for hundreds of years, but they had hope. They had hope because they had prophets speak on behalf of God and remind them of his promises. And these prophets had said, before God comes to save you, one final prophet will come. A prophet like Elijah in the Old Testament, they would say. Now, Elijah was a great prophet, a memorable prophet. He was a wild man. He lived in the desert. Literally, in the Bible, he's described as a hairy man who wore leather and animal skins. But more importantly, Elijah's message was very simple. His message was, turn back to God. That was his message. And so fast forward to our passage, that's who Israel are waiting for. This one final prophet, like Elijah. Have a look with me in verse 2. It should come up on the screen. As it is written, in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. This is what Israel were waiting for. A voice crying out in the wilderness, telling them to get ready. To get ready because God is coming. 
And Mark tells us this because he wants to remind us that Jesus isn't just in the New Testament. Jesus is tied to the whole Bible, all of it. And the first two-thirds of your Bibles, the big chunk before Mark, is all in anticipation of Jesus. That's how long human history has been waiting for him. And Mark shows us, wants to show us that, wants us to know that everything he's writing about, everything he saw and we're about to read, is best understood by what God said earlier in the Old Testament. This story isn't something new. This is just part of one story, God's story of the universe. If we want to understand the Bible rightly, we need to understand it's a package deal. Sometimes people think they've done a gotcha on the Bible by taking it piecemeal, picking and choosing books or chapters, each even individual verses, and saying, the Bible doesn't make sense, or, or it's just plain weird. But let's not forget, the Bible is a package deal. Each part informs one another. So this is the context of our passage, and this leads us to our second point, John's perspective. Now, John is often called John the Baptist because, fittingly, he he baptized people. But the description of him is what stands out. Have a look, verse 6. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Sound familiar? He was like Elijah in the Old Testament. John didn't get his clothes from the shops. He didn't get his meat and veg from Countdown or Pack and Save. He ate grasshoppers and what we might call incredibly fresh honey. He was like Bear Grylls or Steve Irwin on steroids. But John wasn't just more wild than Bear Grylls or the Crocodile Hunter. He was more famous as well. See, it says there in verse 5 on the screen, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. See, we often don't realize how famous John actually was. But John the Baptist was the biggest thing that had happened there in that time in 400 years. And so people were running to him and asking themselves, is this the next big prophet? Is this the one who will prepare the way for the Lord? When you have an important visitor coming over, maybe it's you know, the mother-in-law or maybe it's your boss, when you have an important visitor coming over, what do you do? You clean up the house, right? You vacuum, you, you clear the table, you wipe down the benches. Sometimes it's the only time Angela can get me to clean the house. You clean up. Now John, John the Baptist, like Elijah, had a simple message. His message was, the Lord is coming. God's promised king, the big boss, is coming. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to not just get your house clean, but to get yourself clean? Have a look, verse 4. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now that word repentance simply means to turn around. Do a U-turn. It wasn't an especially religious word at the time. It just meant turn back. Stop going that way and do a 180. And like Elijah, John was telling them to turn back to God. He was saying, you need to realize you've sinned You've not treated God as God. You're going the wrong way. And so John was telling them to wholeheartedly turn back to God, and baptism was a symbol of that. To be washed with water was a sign of a new beginning, a sign that you have turned back and God has forgiven you. 
Now, it's important to realize here that for the people in this passage, Jewish people, needing to be baptized wasn't a compliment. It wasn't a good thing. We here might love baptisms. We all gather around, invite people. We think it's a beautiful thing. But what John was telling them to do was actually quite offensive. For them, it's offensive because for a Jewish person, it was the outsiders who got baptized. Baptism was a sign that you weren't a part of God's special people. You were an outsider wanting to come in. And so for Jews, they would have thought, we're already part of God's special people. God's coming to save us. We don't need to turn back to God. When God comes, he'll judge the other people out there, but not us. But John's saying here, I don't care who you are. I don't care what tribe you're from, what religious background you have. You need God's forgiveness. You need to repent, turn away from your sin, and turn back to God. And John's message to them is the same message to us 2,000 years later. We have all sinned. We all deserve God's judgment. But the sad reality is, the majority of Kiwis think, she'll be right. They think God's their friend. God's their mate. They think God will accept them for just being a nice guy or girl, or for not being as bad as other people. We love judging and looking at other people, but we're not very good at looking at ourselves. John's telling us, don't presume on God here. Look at yourself and realize you need to turn back and find forgiveness. Far too often, we think we know what's best. But this is why Christians value the Bible so much. Because we need to hear not what we think of ourselves, but what God thinks of us. Now, as the thousands and thousands of people came to John to be baptized, he went on to remind them, I'm not the main game. Don't get too comfortable. I'm just the warm-up act. I'm the person who gets on stage before the real show gets started. Have a look. Verse 7. should come up on the screen. He, John, proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. What house chore do you hate doing? Maybe it's washing the toilet. Maybe it's throwing out the trash. For me, it's cleaning the fridge. I never do that. Whatever it is for you, in the first century, the common classic was handling feet. We might not think this is a very big deal, but back then, it was a slave's job because it wasn't very nice. People didn't have much clean water. They didn't shower every day. Feet were exposed to literally everything. And so handling someone else's feet wasn't just a hard job, but it was a degrading job. Yet, yet for John, the most important person to come in 400 years, the person thousands and thousands were coming to, for him, this is how special the one who is coming is. I am so inferior, he says. I am so inferior that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do the most degrading job possible for him. But even more than that, John says... What he will give you is so much better than whatever I can give you. Have a look, verse 8. I baptize you with water, he says, but he, the one who is coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was just a symbol, just a sign. It pointed to the fact that you had repented and asked for forgiveness. But the baptism from the one coming, that baptism is not a symbol. He gives you the real deal, John says. 
The one coming will give you the Holy Spirit. He will put God's very own spirit inside of you and actually wash you clean. Clean from any sin and clean in the eyes of God. We, of course, know who the one coming is, don't we? Unlike them, we know the one coming is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the people there didn't. And it's at this point we change from John's perspective to God's perspective. Turn with me to verse 9. should pop up on the screen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show had a series where he would get famous artists to perform some undercover busking, kind of a social experiment. He'd head into the bustling train station with them wearing fake wigs, moustaches, and rugged outfits. It's a picture of the band U2 undercover. should come up on the screen. These famous artists would go undercover, and when they started playing, people initially don't recognize them. They're ignored. And it's a bit like here with, here with Jesus. When he comes onto the scene, when Jesus comes onto the scene, onto center stage, there were no screaming crowds for him. Unlike John, there weren't thousands upon thousands flocking to him. No fireworks, no red carpet, no one recognized him. In fact, they probably looked down on him as some country hillbilly from the backwater town of Galilee. Jesus was just one of the crowd. But let's not miss this perspective of Jesus we have here. See, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He alone of all people never sinned. He didn't need to turn back to God. He didn't need forgiveness. Yet right here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the first thing we see about him is that he did not associate with the self-righteous, with people who thought they were good. No, Jesus associated with the sinner. See, Jesus didn't hang out with people who thought they were what God should love. He hung out with people who knew they needed to be washed clean. Jesus did not come to stand in judgment, but he came to stand with us, sinners, and to offer salvation. And this moment right here points forward to how eventually Jesus stands not just with us, but on behalf of us, as he takes on the death we all deserve, the penalty of sin. Jesus dies our death so we don't have to. Now the people there that day, unlike us, didn't know that. They just saw an unimpressive man, some random, just one of the crowd wanting to be baptized. But what people don't see, God sees. And God saw something different that day. Let's read it together in verse 10. As soon as he, Jesus, came up out of the water... He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. The time has come to get to work. The time has come for the sinless Son of God to deliver humanity from sin and death. This isn't just Mark or John the Baptist's perspective anymore. This is God's perspective. Now, there's just one final thing God has to show us in this passage, and it's a bit strange, because the first thing God sends Jesus to do isn't what we might expect. Have a look with me, verse 12 and 13. Immediately, the Spirit drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels were serving him. The first thing Jesus does isn't heal the sick. 
It isn't doing miracles. It isn't even to preach. The first thing God does is send Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. This talk about Satan or or the devil isn't part of our normal vocabulary today, is it? Discussion about angels and demons is not part of our comfortable, rational, modern world. But the devil, or angels and demons for that matter, are real. There's a reality beyond our physical existence. Yes, some people, even Christians, make far too much of this sort of thing. But for many of us here in wealthy Western countries, make far too little of it. The greatest trick the devil has pulled over our world today is convincing people he doesn't exist. Convincing people that all you see in this world is all that there is. We'll get to look more into this next week when we ask the question, why don't we see miracles today? But importantly, what verse 12 and 13 show us is that Jesus came to fight a spiritual battle. This is why Jesus came. See, it's funny because people are comfortable with, the Jesus, with Jesus the politician or Jesus the social reformer or some other imaginary Jesus. But Jesus didn't come for any of that. Jesus came to fight a spiritual battle. He fights the battle we can't. See, the devil exists to tempt us, lead us to sin, and to lead us away from God. And Jesus was at war with the devil so that we might turn back to God. What we see here is the war Jesus came to save us from. And unlike Israel, unlike us, Jesus wins this battle. He was tempted in every way, but did not sin. And so to this end, why should I care about the Bible? Because the Bible gives you the real Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And when we meet the real Jesus, it demands a response. We can't cheap out or be lazy with this. There are very real consequences on whether we decide to trust him or not. But there's no in between. Have a look with me at verse 14. After John was arrested... Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Bible matters because in it you meet your maker. Through it you experience true forgiveness, and by it you begin a relationship with God. This is the good news of the Bible. Just as God said to Jesus, this is my son. He's saying to us, I'm your God. Jesus is your king, and so come to him. Through the Bible, we aren't just hearing Mark or John the Baptist, but we're meeting, knowing, and hearing from God himself. There's no news more important to respond to, no news more important to live by. And so the question for us is, have you met this Jesus, the Jesus we meet in the Bible? Have you met him? Let's pray that we might be able to respond to this question rightly. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we see how you so affectionately spoke to your son Jesus, your beloved son, and how he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, your promised Savior King. And so as we see that in this text here today, might we shape our lives around that? May we grow in affection of him. May we be captivated by him and help us to do that. Help us to read your word more and see more of who your son is and to know him better. Help us to do that. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.